Kafeo Mai of Tune into Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, coming up on our show. I believe that alone, actually getting to know each other, getting to know what the issues are, it's, it's a big plus. The first Pacific Education Ministers Conference in Auckland passes with flying colours. Also, we go globally and locally to find very well qualified and capable and experienced commissioners. Papua New Guinea is one step closer to setting up its anti-corruption agency, and later on... And you have to win at all costs, because what makes my sport unique is when you lose, you've been hurt more. No Guts, No Glory is seen through a new series about a group of people who prepare for their first MMA bout. We chat to the man that's giving them a fighting chance. Tonga's Prime Minister is pleased with the outcomes of the inaugural Conference of Pacific Education Ministers. This was hosted by New Zealand's Education Minister in Auckland this week. Lydia Lewis was at the conference. Huakava Meiliku Siosi Sovalini has met with Jan Tanete. He says he discussed the issue of high school fees for Pacific students studying in Aotearoa. Ms Tanete says Huakava Meiliku is not the only leader to have raised a similar issue with her. She says she is not ruling out changes being made to make it more affordable, but says it would be a massive change and cannot rule it in either. An education minister's network was established at the meeting to keep up communication and continue discussions. At the conference, an education minister's network was established to keep up communication following what's been called a very productive meeting. Lydia Lua spoke with Huakave Meiliku about the network and the issues Tonga's education system is facing. As part of, of this meeting, we are uh, forming up an education minister's network so we can continue the discussion uh, that, that started here. And, and I believe that alone, actually getting to know each other, getting to know what the issues are, it's, it's a big plus uh, so that we can continue this discussion uh, after the meeting. So the minister's network is something new to come out of this? It, 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 it's basically a, a communication uh, platform whereby we can continue the discussion. Uh, well, there's a whole lot of issues in education that we need to discuss. Can't cover it in two or three days, but at least we've started it. We've identified key issues, as the Minister of Education of New Zealand pointed out, but then we can continue that discussion rather than waiting for another ministerial meeting. For Tonga, what are the main issues in education? Have students suffered following last year's eruption? How much have they suffered? Well, we've tried to actually work with a lot of the some of the New Zealand organisations, uh, a lot of them Thomas, to actually come back and talk to students, get them over some of the, the issues that they have, mental issues. But at the same time, we're, we're focusing on, on making sure that the education system are more resilient, not just focusing on actually trying to get the, the schools a little bit you know, safer and all that, but at the same time looking at, at the soft side, that, that if there's going to be some restrictions, some disruption in the future, we can use technology to provide education to students wherever they are, whether they have a, a, a classroom or not. How many schools were totally destroyed or severely damaged? What are the figures? Fortunately, only about eight were, those were in the islands and, and in the, you know, 
near the, the beaches and all, all that. So uh, we're focusing on, uh, well, they've started uh, rebuilding those ones. Our priorities in the beginning has always been residential homes so we can get families back into a, a safe environment to start having, uh, you know, uh, taking kids to education, having a, you know, a job and all that stuff. So now that we're about 70 to 80 percent there with the residential, we're now continuing some work on the education level, which, I mean, uh, we actually have to reallocate students to other school as, as an interim measure while we're setting up, uh, we're building more classrooms. How many students are being relocated to other schools or have been so far? Well, I mean, in, in a total context, we're, we're probably talking about 200. Uh, that That's mainly in vulnerable communities, so that kind of uh, make it a little bit more difficult because these are uh, people in the islands. And is more support needed from partner countries and countries like New Zealand and Australia to get these schools back up and running? Uh, definitely. We, we even talk uh, about seasonal workers' program, actually taking some of the, you know, uh, even teachers resigning and actually going on seasonal workers' program. So we're looking at strengthening our training institution, getting more people enrolled so that we can cater for our local demand. At the conference, the role of women in education was also raised by a number of leaders. Education Minister for the Solomon Islands, Lanao Tanangara, says she wants to see more women at the table. Being the only two females are ministers of education in Pacific, thank you for the honour. Ms Tanangara says more collaboration within the region is also needed. We already have our national priorities and what can our development partners do to make this a reality. We request that this should not be done in silo but in partnership. In Solomon Islands, the NFAT and DFAT is a leading example of this partnership and what we request of them is to coordinate other supporting partners to join support for Solomon Islands and the Pacific. The host of the meeting, Jan Taniti, says she would like to explore teacher and student exchanges, which was one of the points raised by the ministers. She says she's heard ministers' concerns around the narrowing of school curriculums and agrees life skills are essential. And she agrees more women should be present. I'm very lucky in our parliament. We have 50% women representation in our parliament. It has changed how we talk about things. Women do bring a different perspective, and it is really important that we hear their voices, and we hear their voices loud. It's important that we have a balance. Support those women into those leadership roles to help be around this table as well. The Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum spoke at the conference. He said without education to drive economic growth, Pacific nations will remain dependent on others to finance development goals. He says without education, there can be no 2050 future. After years of campaigning by organisations such as Transparency International, Papua New Guinea is now very close to having an independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC, formally in place. Legislation was passed by the previous parliament, but this week Prime Minister James Marape announced that commissioners have now been selected, and soon the organisation will be operational. Over the years, corruption in PNG has been called systemic, including by one of the country's former prime ministers, the late Sir Makere Morauta. The chairman of Transparency PNG, Peter Aitzi, says having an ICAC in place will play an important role in overcoming corruption. It'll be a major step forward in the view of TIPNG that will have a, a dedicated agency that will uh, be able to investigate, charge and then potentially support the prosecution of those individuals found to be involved in corruption. 
So that's a major step forward. It is, in the end, going to come down to whether it's properly funded. Uh, Are you confident the government will do that? It's got to this stage in terms of passing the legislation and uh, going through the process of appointing commissioners. Is it going to fund it properly? Look, we've been reassured by the government. You know, on on that reassurance, I mean, they've been True to their word in terms of the commitment they've given ICAC, as you've said, they've passed the legislation, they've supported the recruitment, uh, and they've actually supported the independent process to to go globally and and locally to find very well-qualified and capable and experienced commissioners. And within the ICAC Act itself, it places ICAC on a similar level as the Ombudsman in terms of its funding through the budget process. So that gives us a level of, uh, of comfort. These commissioners will have to have quite extensive staffs, won't they, if they're going to be able to look at various organisations and government departments and so on right throughout the country. They're going to need manpower. Uh, That's correct, Don. And um, look, there is an interim ICAC office that had been established uh, at least, I think, two years ago, and that's been uh, ably led by the acting ICAC Chairman uh, Mr Thomas Ellu, an experienced gentleman in his own right, and there is a, a staff currently in place supporting uh, the progression of the ICAC legislation. Uh, so some of those staff will, will transition into the formally established ICAC, but really the, the task ahead of us is to get the commissioners in place, uh, and then with those com- three commissioners in place, to start to consider the full structure that's required in order for ICAC to be operationalised. And I would uh, think that uh, that would be a phased process as the commissioners take on their role so that they can fully understand the extent of their work. There are two allied bits of legislation that the government has passed. There's the Whistleblowers Act and the Proceeds of Crime Act. How important are they, or how important is it that those three measures are grouped together? Are very important. Uh, it'll support the work of, of ICAC, and I think the third component is the unexplained wealth provision within the Criminal uh, Pro- uh, Crimes of Proceeds Act. Um, and so um, it will allow the uh, commissioners to be more proactive in terms of you know, investigating unexplained wealth and also to pursue or pursue, prosecute individuals that could be involved in fraudulent activities and criminal behaviour. Will they be able to look back or is it, is it going to be something that applies from this point on? Can they go back uh, a number of years? I believe and, uh, that they can, and so um, it's really for the commissioners in terms of where they direct their, you know, their resources, because there's, a, there's an endless tunnel if you go backwards as well. But it's really for them to set the, uh, the priorities and strategies for the commission as they come in and, and see the extent of their work. An organisation like Transparency International, you'd be looking at this and thinking, well, now, from this point on, we should start seeing changes that people will be thinking twice about doing anything corrupt. We're hopeful, um, Don, but it's a major, as I said, I mean, there's still a task ahead of us. Um, ICAC is only one piece of, of the, the puzzle. You know, we need to also encourage investment and uh, capabilities into our police force, into our judiciary, into our Ombudsman Commission um, and into the various, you know, oversight agencies within government. And that's supported by, a, if you like, broader accountability through uh, the community and the business community in particular. Uh, will help us to start to build, you know, the anti-corruption framework or the environment within the country that will better that will better serve, you know, us uh, in terms of the fight against corruption. Yes, well, one of those oversight organisations, I guess, is the media, and yet the government is in the process of perhaps 
it would appear to uh, certainly a lot in the media in PNG that the government is trying to hamper it. Look, there has been uh, a, a recent proposal uh, in the form of a media development policy uh, put out by the Department of Information and Communications uh, Technology. And so I think in their haste, they, they released a document. But thankfully, through the response of the Media Council and also the, the, from TIPNG, I think we've been able to, to perhaps uh, demonstrate to them the value of, of uh, proper consultation, uh, which uh, hopefully will get us a better outcome in terms of the, the understanding of a, the value of a, 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 an independent media in terms of our uh, democracy. On March 27th, RNZ will air a documentary series called Fighting Chance. It follows a group of everyday people who prepare for their first mixed martial arts fight in the space of 20 weeks. All are driven by personal journeys of overcoming obstacles, fears and insecurities. Fina Funo spoke with Kiwi Samoan MMA coach Eugene Behrman, who stars in the series. This series called Fighting Chance, could you describe it? What's the focus of, of this series? I mean, I mean, fighting chances is, is basically um, it's basically a program which is designed to take new people with no experience in in martial arts or fighting or mixed martial arts to take them from absolutely absolute novice to position five months later or six months later where they can. Uh, be competent and enter into a contest, a full amateur contest in MMA. And along that journey, they will learn about many of the virtues of uh, martial arts and some of the, the ethics and values that get taught to martial artists and professional fighters. So I think that journey, uh, learning some of those virtues, is more what it's about. But at the end of the day, they do get themselves in good physical shape and uh, enter into an actual match at the end of it. And could you describe these virtues? What does, um, um, from your experience, <clears throat> what does mixed martial arts teach people? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So, like, the first, first and foremost, uh, um, like, discipline. So, working on something every single day, or uh, no matter how small or large the task is like having the discipline to come in and work on something every single day and um, to understand that that's how you that's how you get results is you you plug away at something relentlessly regardless of your rate of improvement as long as you're as long as the curve is going up and you're slowly improving that kind of relentless pursuit and discipline of doing something every single day is like is it's important for people to understand that if you plug away at something every day and you're diligent and disciplined that you can get results and i think that's first and the biggest lesson that we teach people i think the other lesson is also around the other big lesson is about the obstacles that you face in a mixed martial arts fight, and a lot of them physical, but they manifest themselves mentally. What we do is we work through those problems. And it might be, as an example, it might be that you're getting taken down to the ground a lot, and you feel like you physically are not able to stop yourself from uh, being taken down. 
But then what we do is we break it down and we address it and we break it down technically and we figure out what skills are lacking and we work on it and we overcome that obstacle. And then what that that uh, process of working out that problem and working through it, that is a problem-solving process that you can take, uh, that you can cross into any aspect of your life. And I think the power of knowing that is another thing yeah, another powerful lesson that you learn um, during this program. Yeah, we often hear from fighters about the psychological aspects of of fighting in the ring, like that it's just as important as the physical training. Yeah, could could you describe that mental, like what is it? This mental psychological battle. I mean. Human beings, like we know that we get growth from adversity. And one of the modern day problems with human beings is some of the more traditional uh, forms of adversity that we used to face um, in terms of starvation and shelter and animals attacking you, these sort of things. We don't have to go through that adversity anymore in the modern world. So we don't go we don't get put under pressure and when we get put under pressure we learn a lot about ourselves and we grow as people you grow stronger generally now what combat sports does or what's putting yourself in a situation where you want to where you're going to go into a match does is it puts you through kind of it puts you through that adversity it's kind of it's going back to a time where it triggers something within you uh when you're dealing that with that adversity that makes you grow into a stronger person and that is because it's all about the flight and fight response like no one voluntarily wants to put themselves in harm's way but nevertheless what the program does is it challenges you to do that and it challenges you to and and we provide a safe environment to do so and we what we're doing is we're telling everybody to put themselves through a bit of voluntary adversity and let's see what sort of growth you get out of it let's see how you let's see how you attack these problems. Let's see how you overcome these problems. Let's ha- let's work through these problems together, and let's come out the other side and see what the result is. And um, almost overwhelmingly, one of the biggest things that I've uh, garnered out of this program is that everybody comes out of it uh, win, loss, or draw, uh, a better person, uh, mentally, uh, spiritually, and physically. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs or download for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcast. From myself and the team that made this episode an awesome one yet, so far so far.